The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making an investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management. I think there are some really relevant takeaways about the pace of change in consumer purchasing patterns, the importance of management decisions in adapting to those changes, and also the challenges in finding retail businesses with really strong and sustainable competitive advantages. That's Hannah Dickinson, Magellan Sector Head of Franchises, describing the rise and fall of Baird Bath & Beyond, a US homewares retailer that went from market juggernaut to bankruptcy. Welcome to Magellan In The Know. In this episode, Hannah Dickinson joins Magellan Portfolio Manager Joel Amores to dissect the downfall of a company that was once a go-to retailer in the United States. It's a salutary story of what not to do in the consumer space, which has important lessons for any investor. And it illustrates just why it's important to team with seasoned market experts when investing your hard-earned funds. But first, here's a warm welcome from Portfolio Manager Joel Amores. Welcome to our podcast, Magellan in the Know. I'm Joel Morris, and I'm joined today by our brilliant Hannah Dickinson, who heads up our franchises sector team. In our last podcast, we had Hannah sit down with two of our other colleagues doing a deep dive on the consumer sector, talking through some critical characteristics of our consumer portfolio. It was a fascinating discussion, and I highly encourage you to listen to it if you haven't already done so. And after a lot of positive feedback, we thought we'd extend that line of discussion. But this time around, we thought we'd do something a little bit different and talk about some consumer plays that are on the wrong side of that quality fence. Those that don't have the differentiated product don't have much pricing power and have little to no protection when it comes to inflation. And the one that comes to mind is Bed Bath & Beyond. This is a fascinating one because we get some insight on why retailing is hard, what we can learn from business values as investors, and how Magellan thinks about investing in these businesses. So let's get started. Hannah, Bed Bath & Beyond. This is, or was, a US-based retailer that most of our listeners might not be familiar with. I'm familiar with the name, having spent a couple of decades in the States, but perhaps, Hannah, you can provide our listeners with some background on Bed Bath & Beyond. Sure. So Bed Bath & Beyond, it's not a company that's been part of our investable universe, but as you might have guessed from the name, it's a specialty home goods retailer that sells things like towels, sheets, plates, and kitchenware. It's a sort of place where people would go to deck out their dorm room or their first house as you could really find a large selection of branded and unbranded product at a reasonable price point. You could probably compare it to Australian retailers like Bed Bath & Table or Adairs in terms of the category focus, but really the scale of Bed Bath & Beyond in the US was just on another level. So it did enjoy huge success for many years, but It really started to lose market share about a decade ago, and it's been progressively closing a large number of unproductive stores. So if we're looking at its share price today, it's trading at under a dollar, one US dollar, after peaking at about US $80 back in 2013. The company did make a few last-ditch efforts to keep itself alive, and there, there was a brief moment of meme stock glory in 2021, but Unfortunately, it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection a few weeks ago at the end of April. Quite a few interesting things to unpack there. Uh, A lot of drama, (laughs) more drama than an episode of Succession, except cheaper and less luxurious, I guess. 
So let's maybe dive into the company's uh, history first and understand why and how it became successful. Then maybe we'd talk a bit about why its operational wheels started falling off. I remember a management shakeup at some point, which preceded a, a turnaround that looked sensible on paper, but turned out otherwise. Hannah, we'd love to get your insights here on what went wrong, as well as some of the lessons for investors. We often talk about lessons that we can learn from some of the best companies in the world, but I reckon there's just as many important lessons investors can take away from this bankruptcy. Yeah, look, I think you're right that there's a lot of drama in this story and it's a bit more polyester than cashmere, but I think there are some really relevant takeaways about the pace of change in consumer purchasing patterns, the importance of management decisions in adapting to those changes, and also the challenges in finding retail businesses with really strong and sustainable competitive advantages. Let's go back to the beginning. Bed Bath & Beyond got its start back in 1971 by two executives with a, a long history in, in retail. Started from one small store before it eventually grew into this successful retail concept. What did they get right? They did get a lot of things right in the early days. I think, you know, there were a few factors, but I think it really boils down to having a differentiated value proposition that resonated with consumers. So Bed Bath & Beyond was founded at a time back in the 70s when department stores really dominated the retail landscape. And the department store model is to offer breadth rather than depth. So consumers often couldn't find the product they were after or get the advice that they needed. So the founders of Bed Bath & Beyond, they were visionaries. They identified a gap in the market for a specialty homewares provider that could really be a one-stop shop for homewares. They offered lots of high-quality merchandise at competitive prices, and they really focused on providing friendly, knowledgeable customer service. They also had a unique store layout that made shopping more convenient for customers. Their philosophy was pilot high, let it fly, which meant often stacking goods to the ceiling, leaving stores cluttered. They gave it a treasure hunt feel that apparently consumers loved. Um, so yeah, it quickly became an important player in the retail landscape in the 80s and 90s. That actually brings back some memories. I remember walking to their stores and it was pretty much a, a one-stop shop for buying everything you needed for your dorm room at uni. It had everything and, and a lot of it. Uh, seeing merchandise stacked that high was impressive because of no doubt it led to some spectacular injuries. Um, and at the time, I, I never actually really understood why they needed to stack merchandise as high as they did. And so actually over the weekend, I, I spoke to an old uni classmate of mine in the US who get this as a consumer psychologist or a consumer whisperer. <laughs> um, and he explained to me that it was used to create a, an attractive, positive shopping atmosphere and an experience. And it, it gave the impression that the retailer was flush with with cash and, and doing really well, which subliminally, not sure how, but it encouraged shoppers to, to buy stuff. So this psychology is still actually quite popular, especially with the likes of Costco or, or Home Depot, when you think about their store layouts and and how they, they organize their merchandise. Of course, it wasn't just for psychology purposes, but it also was used to make more floor space for other items. And apparently, if you take the other side of that, shoppers, when they see less merchandise, they get the impression of poor planning, limited funding in terms of being able to keep items in stock, you know, and other shortcomings. So none of these are, are really a good look in the world of retail. And 
how can I forget about the the coupon program? So Ben Bath and Beyond would send you these coupons for twenty percent off any single item in the store, which obviously was a big draw for customers. It worked well at first. It, it drove foot traffic in in stores and subsequently helped sales. But then it went nuts. Mind you, this was at the height of the the coupon frenzy in the U.S. Customers started using different names, but the same address to get more coupons mailed to them. And as you might imagine, it didn't take too long before customers got 20% off their entire shopping basket. So in response, Bed Bath & Beyond ended up increasing the number of exceptions you could use the coupons. And then in the end, while customers still ended up using those coupons, they ended up buying fewer items and items that were lower margin. So for Bed Bath & Beyond, in this case, this made it more challenging to sell the higher margin branded items and basically made nothing on the the lower margin unbranded merchandise. Yeah, the coupon program was something that consumers really loved. It was an important demand driver and it definitely was an effective strategy in the short term. But as you said, it eventually became a contributor to the company's downfall. Interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. Company financials can tell us a lot about a company. What did, what did it tell us about Bed Bath & Beyond? Well, in the 90s and early 2000s, the company's financials looked really strong. So Bed Bath & Beyond's revenue over that period compounded at a rate of about 23%. So that's massive. And it reached nearly $9 billion US dollars of revenue in 2010. When we're analysing a retail concept, the important top-line metrics that we're thinking about are store growth and same-store sales growth, which can also be called comparable store sales growth. From the early 90s to 2010, Bed Bath & Beyond opened nearly 1,000 stores across the US and it ended up totaling about 35 million square feet of retail space. So it was a massive scale player in that category. Yeah, maybe to put that into context, that's about 540 footy fields and each store was about half a footy field. So a lot of pillows and blankets. Yeah, and the store rollout was really a big driver of overall sales growth when you think about that 23% compound rate over that period. But on top of that, comparable store sales growth was averaging about 6% per year. That's a really important metric to consider because revenue growth, if it's solely driven by new stores, it's not sustainable. It has to be backed up by improving or at least stable store level performance. And what about profitability? Yeah, profitability looked good as well. So operating profit margins improved from about 12% to 15% over that period as the business scaled up and return on invested capital reached about 16%. So by that point, Bed Bath & Beyond, dominant player in the homeware space, loved by customers, could do no wrong when it came to its investor base. But things went a little pear-shaped from about 2011. Same-store sales started to decelerate, operating margins started to get squeezed, and free cash flow per share was declining. What was going on in the business at that point? So that was the point when competitive pressures from Amazon really started to take a toll on the business. So up until that point, the company had been a really successful brick and mortar retailer with a loyal customer base, but it really struggled to keep up with changing consumer preferences. Its response to Amazon specifically and really the e-commerce challenge more broadly was, I think you could describe it as slow and reactive. 
So the company only launched its first online store in 2004, which was many years after Amazon began its ascent. And after launching its e-commerce platform, its digital strategy was pretty lackluster. So they had limited investment in website optimization, online marketing, mobile capabilities, that sort of thing. E-commerce response did eventually pick up steam in the mid-2010s as it started to realise this need to invest more heavily in its digital presence to remain competitive. But by that point, it was a bit too late. So its website and mobile app lagged behind those of its competitors and at the kind of back end, its supply chain and logistics capabilities were struggling to keep up with the demands of e-commerce. Another issue that came about at this point, as we kind of touched on before, was the company's coupon strategy. So as online shopping grew, coupons became less effective because customers could compare prices across different sites to find the lowest one. And by that point, customers had begun to perceive Bed Bath & Beyond's product as overpriced unless they had a coupon. I guess now you can see what how detrimental coupons were when it was really a, originally planned as a tool for for bringing in foot traffic. Mm. And the the net result of all of this was a loss of market share, not only to Amazon, but to other e-commerce players and even other retailers. And as all this was going on, its unit economics were deteriorating, but the company kept rolling out stores. Okay. So Bed Bath & Beyond, case of too little, too late, it seems, which I'm guessing led to a a reactive response as opposed to a proactive one by management. I remember reading an article not too long ago about the two founders. They they actually admitted it that they were too slow in their digital strategy, which I'm guessing may have been out of caution at the time, not long after the dot-com bubble had popped. Yeah, look, I think talking about management, there certainly were some category-specific issues, operational issues that the company ran into some of it was outside of their control, but a lot of it wasn't. So I think it's worth exploring their capital allocation strategy in a bit more detail. So before 2010, the company's performance had mostly been driven by organic growth. But it was interesting to see that as it started to you know, have some of these competitive challenges, the company became more acquisitive. So it added new retail concepts like Bye Bye Baby, world market and a chain called Christmas tree shops, which is kind of like the reject shop with a focus on holidays. <laughs> and this was presumably an attempt to diversify the company's revenue streams and expand its reach. Now, I don't necessarily want to move away from our discussion on, on their strategic failures or, or mismanagement, but I, I did also want to talk about their governance. I'd argue that this was the really a common thread in all their failings. I'm not actually sure where to start. If we think down the line, we had issues of nepotism. So, so they acquired that Bye Bye Baby, which was founded by one of the co-founders' children. And then to match that, they purchased a business called Chef Central, which was created by the other co-founder's son, even after it had closed its last stores. So they bought it after they closed their last stores. And they bought that for a, a million bucks. But subsequent to that, that resulted in five of the independent directors resigning. They also had the worst share buyback ever, I would argue anyway. Back in 2014, the board started a buyback program in response to pressure from activist investors. They actually took 
out about $2 billion of debt to pay for the buybacks instead of, as you might imagine, instead of investing in its e-commerce platform. Then in 2020, not to be outdone, they announced another $675 million buyback as part of its turnaround plan. And uh, they didn't want to stop there. It looked like they raised that amount to $825 million before finally raising it to a billion dollars in 2021. So this was at a time when the business was, was tenuous at best during the height of COVID and it was burning through cash like Hannah at a Black Friday sale. And then let's not forget about their equity raisings on top of all that. So they had two separate raisings in a five-month span, one to pay down debt and the other to take advantage of the mean stock phenomenon. That might have been the only thing they did right at the time. So if we think about that, they're both buying back cash and then raising equity as well, really within that three-year period. But maybe that wasn't the craziest part. Remuneration was insane. So in 2021, when all this was happening, the management team collectively took home nearly $36 million. So what do you think about all of this, Hannah? (laughs) A uh, lot to unpack there. Well, so with the benefit of hindsight, all of these things were red flags. The first thing I would say about acquisitions, going back to the the M&A piece of the puzzle, acquisitions in the retail space generally lead to poor returns. So sometimes it's an attempt from management to disguise a weakening underlying business. And in this case, I think it ended up being a distraction that diverted management attention away from the bigger issues facing the business. And then there's the decision to take on more debt to repurchase shares. That was also clearly short-sighted. Buybacks are great for companies that have a lot of excess cash flow, but there's always an opportunity cost in returning that cash to shareholders rather than making other investments. So as a long-term shareholder, we're always cautious of a company that chooses to buy back shares to boost EPS in the short term rather than making sensible investments to future-proof the business. And that was really the beginning of the end, right? Company fundamentals started to deteriorate at that point, and the activists pushed for more changes, then eventually ended up in a management and strategy shakeup. It sounded great on paper, as we mentioned before. Founders left the business at the time, and the board ends up hiring Mark Tritton as CEO, a fellow Aussie, and previously chief merchandising officer at Target. Uh, that's where he helped transform the company. Tritton comes in and, not surprisingly, sells non-core assets, fixes the supply chain, and then refreshes the company's private label brands. Sounded great. Even convinced quite a few investors. So why didn't it work? The private label piece of Tritton's strategy, that had been a really successful element of Target's turnaround plan when he was there. So, you know, private label, by that we mean kind of unbranded product that the retailer manufactures. The idea behind the strategy is to create exclusive and differentiated products that drive customer loyalty and foot traffic. And private label products can also be more profitable for the retailer than branded products because they're cutting out the wholesaler. Unfortunately, it was really in the execution of the strategy that things fell apart for Bed Bath & Beyond. So one issue was that the company introduced too many private label products at once, which led to cannibalisation of existing products and just general confusion amongst customers, it had the effect of alienating the company's core loyal customers who were used to shopping there for branded merchandise. 
I'm guessing it also annoyed a lot of the branded manufacturers. So to have Bed Bath & Beyond push hard on their private label offerings over the brand products probably explains why they ended up with limited deliveries to the stores. Well, that and their, their concerns about Bed Bath's uh, ability to pay their own bills. Yeah, that's right. And the, the quality of the private label products also wasn't up to scratch in many instances, which damaged the company's reputation. Other companies like Target... You know, they had spent years and years perfecting their private label offerings, but Bed Bath & Beyond moved really quickly. They also lacked the supply chain infrastructure to support the new private label offerings. So this became a big issue really during the pandemic. And as you said, the company suffered a lot of out of stocks. And of course, the other problem during COVID was that the company had under invested in its digital platform for many years. Its website was terrible. And it didn't offer services like buy online, pick up in store that many retailers had rolled out years earlier. Actually, I was back in New York during the pandemic and remembered that Bed Bath & Beyond being one of the stores on the news consistently with pictures of empty shelves. Yeah, I think it's a good reminder that investing in a turnaround story can be incredibly risky because That's what this was at this point in the company's life cycle. It was a turnaround story. And often companies like this will look cheap on a price-to-earnings basis, but the denominator in that equation, the earnings, can be incredibly difficult to predict. So we've found that turnarounds often take longer to play out than the market anticipates. They can come with a lot of unexpected costs, and this can be a big problem for a company that has a weak balance sheet to begin with. Yeah, cash was an issue, clearly. I mean, I think that's the the common thing for all bankruptcies. They're all out of cash. Okay, so what happens now with Bed Bath & Beyond? Besides the bankruptcy lawyers, are there any winners in all of this? Yeah, well, the company has 360 Bed Bath & Beyond stores and 120 Bye Bye Baby locations. So those stores will all start to close and they'll liquidate their assets. In terms of winners... You need to think about things like category mix, catchment areas, and store locations. So Target and a company called TJX are probably Bed Bath & Beyond's closest competitors. Amazon also, but remember that only 20% of Bed Bath & Beyond sales were online today, so there's just less market share up for grabs for Amazon. But both TJX and Target, they attract a similar mainstream or value-oriented customer. They offer a mix of home decor, furnishings and small appliances. They're located in similar what we would call off-mall plaza or strip mall type sites. So we'd expect them to be the primary beneficiaries of a demand share shift. So they'll probably gain a bit of market share and maybe they'll even move into some of the vacant retail space that Bed Bath & Beyond has left behind. But just worth remembering that the numbers aren't huge because Bed Bath & Beyond has been losing share for many years. But, you know, generally what we see in these times is that it won't be the only one that goes out of business and the stronger players in the industry will end up being net beneficiaries of a really volatile and disruptive retail environment. So, Anna, can we switch gears and talk about some of the lessons that investors can take away from the Bed Bath & Beyond story? Why is it that some retail businesses survive and in rare instances thrive while the likes of of Bed Bath & Beyond fail? Investing in retailers can be really challenging and unfortunately Bed Bath & Beyond's story 
is a relatively common one when you consider the fact that the US has the highest retail space per capita in the world by a long shot. So it is a a country that is overstored, it's over-retailed. So the trend is going to be for more retailers to go out of business there. When you're thinking about investing in a retailer, and it always depends on your time frame that you're looking at. But if you're a long-term investor, you really have to think about the quality of the business and the sustainability of a company's competitive advantages. So when we're looking at retailers, we're thinking about things like the company's category exposure. So how competitive is the category it's playing in? Is this a consolidated or a fragmented market? And is the company a player of scale in that market? Then we'd be thinking about structural trends. So how are consumer preferences and behaviours changing and is it benefiting the retailer you're looking at or is it doing the opposite? Then you'd want to think about the company's differentiation within the category it's playing in. So are they offering some sort of exceptional customer service or exclusive brands? Do they have a location advantage? Perhaps a loyalty program like Amazon Prime that really keeps consumers coming back. And then the final two points would be the quality of the management team or strategy, and that's super important for a retailer, and then also susceptibility to online disruption. So that's really a category-focused question, but we're thinking about things like the importance of touch and feel or trial or customer service because those factors can really influence how susceptible a company is to competition from e-commerce. Generally, what we find is that there are retailers out there that have strong, sustainable, competitive advantages, but they are rare. It's hard to be truly differentiated as a retailer. Customer preferences change quickly and bad management teams or a poor strategic focus can be really destructive. So, We tend to be very selective in our retail investments and retailers typically only account for a small percentage of our portfolio, but we do invest in Lowe's and Amazon at the moment. Home Depot and Lowe's are are good examples of retail business that have have really done well, really thrived much in the same way as our Australian equivalent, Bunnings. So what makes these businesses work, these particular retailers? Well, if you go back to the some of the factors I mentioned before, I think one important factor is that the home improvement market is really consolidated. So the category in the US is a duopoly pretty much between Home Depot and Lowe's. And then there's this long tail of small players, but Home Depot and Lowe's have immense scale in procurement and distribution. So the local players really can't compete with them on price. The other factor that's been really important, particularly over the past 10 to 15 years, is the fact that this is a category that tends to be less vulnerable to e-commerce disruption. So it's been insulated from the Amazon effect. So one reason is that you need breadth of product offering if you're looking for home improvement supplies. Generally, if you're coming into the store, it's a product that you need immediately. You can't necessarily afford to wait for shipping time. But then the other factor is that the sales expertise is hugely valuable to customers. So it's much more important to have expert sales advice when you're thinking about home improvement items than when you're thinking about what decor you're going to have for your house. So that's kind of helped Home Depot and Lowe's build up a really loyal customer base, particularly with professional customers or tradesmen. They get great service. 
they know what they're going to get and they will keep coming back to that same retailer over many years. Now, Hannah, you, you touched on a, a lot of excellent points in terms of what makes a, a great retailer. Um, is there anything else that investors should be conscious of when they think about investing in, in this retail space? So I did touch on this before, but I think one thing that's super important to understand is the management team, the quality of the management team, and whether you agree with the strategy. So we're constantly asking ourselves, how does this company allocate capital? Do they have a history of making sensible strategic decisions? And we tend to find that management is much more important for a retailer than a brand. It's much easier to stuff up a retailer than it is to stuff up a brand. The other thing that investors need to be conscious of is where a retailer is in its life cycle because retail investing can be a game of timing. When the music stops playing for a retailer, the fallout can be quick and painful for investors. So if a retailer is rolling out stores, they're posting same store sales growth every year, it'll be priced as a growth stock, can make a great investment for many years. But the minute the market sees signs of maturity or signs that its store rollout and penetration power has started to deteriorate, the price to earnings ratio of that company will derate and earnings estimates will will have to come down as well. Okay, fantastic. So maybe let's end with a, a fun one. What does the future of retailing look like? You know, in my mind, I think stores will will end up becoming more like showrooms where you you go into a store. And there's, there's a size for each color, if we're talking about a clothing store, and you can try it on uh, for size, touch it, feel it, smell it. But in the end, you don't walk out with, with any merchandise, but instead you it comes out and it's delivered to you same day, next day from one particular distribution site. And so in that sense, the retailer ends up saving all this real estate and they can ensure the the customer that they will have the merchandise on hand. So am I off there? I know, like, where do you think retailing goes? I think you're right in the sense that physical retailing is not dead. So I think people wondered whether COVID would be the nail in the coffin for physical retail, but it actually came back with a vengeance. And what we've discovered, particularly in 2022, was that people still want physical retail experiences. They want to touch and feel product. They want perhaps a social experience or something to do. So I think physical retail is going to become much more experiential and interactive. And you can already see it with some of the luxury goods players. They're really leading the charge here. So they're creating these elaborate flagship stores with fine dining restaurants, private showrooms for high spending clientele. That's the sort of thing that I would say is kind of the future of retail. Of course, not for every kind of retailer, but it'll be more exciting and immersive. And e-commerce should change as well. So one day we will see digital shopping experiences that are much more seamlessly connected to physical shopping experiences you know, it will know you across the digital realm or across the physical. You'll have kind of one customer experience. There'll be more interactive tools for people to try on products virtually. And the other thing we're hearing about, particularly from tech companies, is that virtual shopping assistants with the help of AI could be there to help you discover products or find the right size and fit. So I think it's an exciting future for retailing. 
Well, that really wraps it up for us today. Thanks again, Hannah, uh, for your, your brilliant insights. And thanks for listening. That was Magellan Portfolio Manager Joel Amoris in discussion with Sector Head of Franchises, Hannah Dickinson. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening.